All right, our text for this morning can be found in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And uh, I am uh, filling in for Justin this morning, who is away on his first anniversary uh, trip. Yeah, so right after I'm done, you guys can all just give Justin a call, give Jill a call, wish him a happy anniversary. I'm sure they'd appreciate 200 phone calls uh, at 12 o'clock. So, all right, and uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18. You may notice that uh, we're skipping the last paragraph of Matthew chapter 17. Um, And that's just because we don't really like what Jesus has to say in that section. So, no, it is because uh, we're going to actually combine a couple passages. Uh, What Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 17 goes really well with some things that he says uh, in Matthew chapter 22. So so we're going to kind of just for efficiency's sake, we're going to look at both those passages together. Today, we're actually going to do a similar thing. We're going to be looking at the first part of Matthew chapter 18, uh, but we're also going to jump ahead a bit and look at some stuff in Matthew chapter 20. So be ready for that. We're going to fast forward a bit and look at, look at some more content in Matthew chapter 20. But at Matthew chapter 18 is the beginning of Jesus' fourth teaching discourse in the book of Matthew. We've seen three extended sections of teaching by Jesus already in Matthew, and there's five total, so we're on four of five. That means we're probably getting close to the end of the book, uh, or you could just look at the chapter numbers. But uh, we're in the fourth teaching discourse, and in this teaching discourse, we, Jesus focuses on uh, instructing his disciples how they are to live within the covenant community that he is creating, that he is establishing. Um, so we're going to see that in depth uh, over the next uh, couple chapters. Jesus wants us to, uh, uh, wants to inform how we are to see people within the kingdom. How we are to see people within the covenant community that he is establishing. That's what he wants his disciples to wrestle with as he gets closer and closer to the end of his life. And we're going to un- unpack what Jesus has to say here with one big idea. So if you could uh, boil this sermon the, uh, down into one sentence, here's, here it is. Oh, on. Uh, here, here's one sentence summary of this sermon. Though pride threatens to destroy us, by trusting our humble king, we can radically fight self-promotion and honor others through our humility. So does everybody have that memorized? Okay, so no, it's a long sentence. That's what happens when you try to boil a a, a whole sermon down into one sentence. It becomes a long sentence. But but, uh, what what we're going to do is we're going to break this sentence down into three parts. That's going to be a three parts, uh, uh, three points of, of our sermon. So uh, we're going to jump in, we're gonna, uh, and uh, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, but before I do that, I'm going to pray. Okay. Father, would, uh, would you be glorified during this time, as, as, as your word is, uh, is, is opened, and as we study it, would you do your work uh, in me? Would you do your work uh, in those who are watching this over the live stream? Uh, would you do your work in each of the individuals seating, sitting in, the, in these chairs this morning? We, we desperately need you to work by the power of your Spirit through your Word. Um, conform us in, more and more into the image of your Son. I, we pray that you would be doing that not only here in this expression of your body, but that you would be doing this 
uh, all over our community. We pray that your gospel would go forth deeply from our uh, brothers and sisters that are meeting over at the Bible Chapel, those who are meeting across the street at at College Heights, uh, those who are meeting down the road at Birchridge, those who will meet later this uh, later today with Acts 247 Church, God would, and, and, other, uh, and other gospel preaching churches, Lord, would you, uh, would you do your work through our brothers and sisters uh, there, even as you are uh, forming us and doing your work uh, in us here at Peninsula Grace. So we commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen. Awesome. Okay, though pride threatens to destroy us, by trusting our humble king, we can radically fight self-promotion and honor others through our humility. Let's read Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. All right, so here we see Jesus hanging out with his disciples one day. They're walking and the disciples have a question for him. And if we look at, actually at Mark and Luke, we see that they've been arguing about this question for uh, a, a time. It's not just kind of some kind of theor- theoretical question that they pull out of the, the air. They, they, they ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of, of, of heaven? And that might seem like an odd question to us, but to understand it, we have to remember what's been going on recently. We saw three weeks ago, uh, and in chapter 16, Jesus called Peter his rock. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, in the, in the very next section, we saw Justin walk us through Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus only brings uh, three disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So it would seem like uh, he is singling out uh, a few of his disciples as more special than the others. And the rest of the disciples, they pick up on this. And so they begin kind of here jockeying for position. Right? When I, when, in high school, I ran the 800 meter, and you can see me there behind me. I, I, and I loved, uh, I loved to, to run that race because, um, because it's, a, it's the perfect combination of, of two things. Firstly, it's, it's 800 meters. So, uh, so it's two laps around a track. It's, uh, it's high school track. So uh, two, la- two laps around the track, that's it. 
not very long, over in a couple minutes. But it's uh, also not a sprint. And if you can tell, I'm not a sprinter. I don't have a sprinter's build. I'm not built for short bursts of energy. Um, so it's a perfect combination that it's short enough for me not to get too tired, but also it's, there's strategy involved. It's not just about sprinting as fast as you can. So uh, in, in the 800, uh, when, when you run it, there's, there's, there's strategy in that you're constantly uh, trying to strategically place yourself in the right position, whether it's in the right position on the, in the track or in the pack, you're, you're changing your, your stride as you run, you're, you, uh, you're, you're, you're constantly making a, a bunch of adjustments as you run. You're never just running aimlessly. Uh, and, you're, and, and that's especially true the closer and closer you get to the finish line. You want to make sure you're in the right place so that you can kick at the right time as you come around the final corner. There's, there's a constant jockeying for position in, every, in any race. And that's exactly what, the, this, what we see the disciples doing here in this conversation with Jesus. They are increasingly seeing the finish line coming. They're increasingly seeing Jesus talking about the Son of Man coming in his glory. And they see Jesus talking about dying and rising again and building this kingdom. And they want to make sure that they are in the right spot at the right time when Jesus ushers in this kingdom. They want to know what does it take to be great in your kingdom. They're consumed with status. They're consumed by a desire for recognition, for approval, for esteem. And the first thing that we should notice about what Jesus says in response to their question is this. The, the disciples' pride, their concern for their status, for their greatness, it threatens to actually destroy them. And the same is true for us today. That's our first point this morning. But if you notice, Jesus doesn't really even answer their question. Instead, he kind of just employs an object lesson. He calls over a child. And we don't know much about who this child was. We know it wasn't an infant, but it also wasn't like a teenager or young adult. It was probably between like the ages of six, maybe seven or eight, maybe up to ten. So between ages six and ten. Any, any kids here between the ages of six and ten? It's convenient because we only have children's ministry for five and down. So. I uh, like how the Bible works like that sometimes. Any, any, any kids between the ages of 6 and 10 in our, not too many, okay, but there's a few. Um, um, as, as, we, as we think about this, don't worry, I'm not going to make you come up on stage or do anything. I just want you to, just want you to think, think for, for a minute. Uh, it, think about what it would be like to be that child who's summoned over by Jesus and put in the middle of 12 arguing men, right? What would it feel like? What would, what would it be like to be in, in, in that child's spot? But then put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Maybe if you, if you didn't raise your hand, if you're an adult here. Um, as you look at these children, as you think about children in general, what characteristics of a child is Jesus calling you to imitate? What characteristics of a child is Jesus calling you to imitate? This child between the ages of six and ten. Some people would say uh, Jesus here is, uh, is uh, telling, that we, telling us that we should be innocent like a child. Because as we all know, children are completely free of all guilt, all corruption, all, all, all of that. Like, no, no, if you've ever spent any time around children, you know that that, that, that cannot be true, right? Uh, and that's why we have a children's ministry at Peninsula Grace, because children are by nature not innocent, that we, are, we all actually uh, stand condemned. Uh, 
so if it's not innocent, if Jesus isn't saying be like a, innocent like a child, what is he saying? I think what he's saying is that, he's, is that one of the most defining characteristics of a child is their humility. Right? Now, that's, now, that's not saying that children aren't prideful. We're, right? We're all prideful, just like we all stand guilty. But children do possess a profound recognition of their own vulnerability. Right? Their, their need for help and their humble status. Whenever my son is, is nervous or, or is scared, he instinctively does something that Monica and I, neither one of us had to train him how to do. That's not, that's not my son, but it's just a, a picture. So um, he, he, he instinctively knows whenever he's nervous, whenever he's scared, he runs to one of us, puts his, knees, or his head between our knees and lifts up his hands like this. He wants to be held. He wants to be picked up and rescued out of whatever situation is causing him to be nervous or scared, right? He just gets that. That's what he's supposed to do. He understands his own vulnerability and his own need for help, his own humble status. And he actually did this at my niece's birthday party a, little, a week or so ago. And uh, he got, you know, there's bigger kids playing around. And he runs across, he gets, he gets freaked out, runs out, runs over and lifts up his hands and it was like, you could just see fear just wash over his face when he realized, oh, that's not my mom. This is some, who is this lady? Um, kids understand their, their own need, their own vulnerability. And this is what it means to turn and become like a child. We are to put away our deluded obsession with our own status, our own independence. And like those that, that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, the, the poor in spirit, uh, we are to recognize our vulnerability and our spiritual bankruptcy. And Jesus says that failure to do this will be devastating. Did you notice the, the intense language that Jesus used? He says that when we clamor for status and recognition, we threaten our own soul, but we also threaten, we'll see, the souls of others. And really we see this beginning in verse 3. He says, unless you become like a child, you will never enter, no, you will never enter the kingdom. The, the disciples were concerned about who was going to get first place in the race. Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you, you don't even qualify to run the race. You, you're asking the wrong question. But then, in verse 5, he tells us a, a second reason uh, why our concern for status is so devastating. He says that whoever welcomes or receives one of these children receives me. But whoever causes one of these to stumble uh, should be drowned in the sea. All right, now what's going on here? What, what does it mean to receive someone? What does it mean to, to be a stumbling block in, in the lives of, 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 of someone? Well, in, in, uh, in ancient Near Eastern culture, one, one of the primary ways that you would honor someone, that one of the primary ways that you would show worth or dignity to someone is, was by welcoming in, them into uh, your home, by receiving them with hospitality. So that's what Jesus is, is, is telling uh, the disciples that they must do. They must welcome, they must associate with, they must share their lives and their possessions and their very home with those who have no status. And Jesus says that one of the marks of, a chi of childlike humility is that we honor the lowly among us. So how do you know if you possess childlike humility? Do you make it a habit to share your life with, to associate with, to, and to open up your homes to those whom you gain nothing from by associating with? 
right? It doesn't boost your reputation to be seen with them or to know, you know, who came over to your house or, or whatever. There's no perks in this relationship. You don't gain anything from it, right? This is what it means to honor the lowly. But then Jesus says that the opposite of honoring the lowly is to place a stumbling block in their way. So when we refuse to do this, when we reject, neglect, or overlook uh, the, the lowly, the, the, we, uh, we place a stumbling block in their way. Now, some of our translations use, like, uh, we cause them to sin, uh, or, uh, uh, but, but the word sin is actually, it's not in the original. It can mean to cause someone to sin, but it can also mean that word can just mean to, to offend or to, to tempt someone with, to sin without actually causing them to sin. Okay, but what is it, so what does that look like? Well, Jesus is telling us that when his followers dishonor or distance themselves or refuse to associate with those who are different from them, those who are, uh, those who are of lower status, then we, we place unnecessary obstacles in their way that hinder them from following Jesus. If we find ourselves rarely, if ever, sharing our lives with brothers and sisters who are, from whom we gain nothing by associating with, then not only are we putting our own selves at risk, Jesus says that we ought to have a millstone hung around our neck, that's strong language, but we are also putting our fellow Christians at risk. By choosing to spend time only with people only like us or only who we uh, gain from, uh, who share our views, who share our social status, we unintentionally overlook those who are on the outside, those who are lowly. And when we overlook them, we actually are pushing people away from the community of God's people that, we have, that they have been designed for. And as we push them away from community by, by staying within the comforts of our own group, we make it harder uh, for, for others to follow Jesus in the way that he intended. Right? Our, our pride threatens to destroy us, and it threatens to destroy the community that Jesus is creating. When we clamor for status and for recognition, we threaten our own souls, and we threaten the souls of others. That's, what I think, what Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 18. In the, af- in, the, in the last two paragraphs of this section, he tells us, firstly, that, that failure to deal with this radically, by, by, by even by removing limbs, uh, failure to deal with this pride and obsession will lead to eternal suffering in the fires of hell. This is no joke. This is not something that Jesus said, oh, by the way, if you can do this, you know, that'd probably be a good idea. No, th- this is pretty serious, it seems, to Jesus. And then in verses 10 through 14, we see that by pridefully looking down upon or overlooking, despising these childlike disciples, we oppose the will of heaven itself. Did that verse stand out to you when we read it? That the, the angels in heaven uh, uh, are, are opposed to this, who have direct access to God. But then we also stand opposed to the nature, the character, and the purposes of God himself, who is a good shepherd, who cares about the, the outcast, the vulnerable, and the lost, the lowly among us. Right? Our pride and our clamoring for status and recognition, it opposes the will of God and his angels. It is deadly and dangerous. So, a couple questions to consider. Uh, Consider the kinds of people that you most frequently honor. I know that's a strange word for our culture. We don't really use 
honor uh, necessarily, but, but think about it. Put yourself in, in Jesus's and the disciples' shoes. Who do you most frequently honor? Who do you most frequently spend time with and seek to befriend? Maybe who do you share your dinner table with? What does this reveal about your pursuit of honor and status? Where in your life have you allowed your pursuit of status or recognition or greatness to hurt someone else? All right, we're, remember, we're, uh, we're looking at one big sentence, one big idea for this morning. Though pride threatens to destroy us by trusting our humble king, we can fight self-promotion and honor others through humility. Okay, we've looked at the first part of that sentence, and we're going to move to the second phrase. By trusting our humble king, we can radically fight self-promotion. We've already seen that Jesus tells us that removing the idol of status and turning from our obsession with recognition, it will not be easy. It will require sacrifice. And I think we get a a better sense of of how hard this will be when we see it uh, crop up again and again in the disciples' life as we move on in Matthew. In fact, this is not the only time that Jesus would have this kind of a conversation with his disciples. We jump ahead to Matthew chapter 20, we see a very similar instance occur. Uh, in, in between the disciples and, and Jesus. So let's, let's, if you just turn the page or maybe two pages in your Bible, uh, flip over to Matthew chapter 20 and we, and we see a, a similar conversation. Starting in verse 20 of chapter 20. It says, The mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's the James and John's mom, comes up, uh, came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, They were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right. So here we see a very similar question just posed in a slightly different way. This, uh, uh, the mother of James and John kind of puts on her helicopter uniform and, and goes in and tries to get, get in with Jesus and asks, who can uh, promise me that my sons will sit at your right hand and at your left hand? But it's not just this helicopter parent that's, that's worried about their status. The, the two brothers... Uh, when, when they, they chip in as well, and they insist that they're up for the task. They say, we are able to drink the cup. They have ambition just as much as their mom does. And then when the other ten find out about it, we find out that it's not just these, the, the mom and the two sons that are concerned about it. When the other ten find out about it, they're ticked as well. They all, no matter how much they, they're following around Jesus and hearing him preach about this upside-down kingdom, they all have pride and ambition. It keeps cropping up. They all have the, the pride virus swimming around in their veins. And the same is true for, for myself as well, and I can imagine for many of you. 
We are too gripped by an obsession with recognition and with status to defeat pride on our own. It's one of those things that just keeps cropping up. Shortly after Monica and I were married, uh, maybe we'd been married for a couple months, um, I had a appointment, a lunch appointment with uh, a mentor of mine who's a professor uh, from college and uh, we said, okay, we'd, we'll meet for lunch at 12 o'clock and I can't remember exactly what happened that morning, but I got out the door late and, um, and I was late uh, to this lunch appointment by like 10 or 15 minutes. So, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm someone who likes to think of myself as punctual. I, I'm not necessarily punctual, but I like to think of myself as punctual. So I, when I arrived 10 to 15 minutes late, I was like, I was frustrated. I was a little, maybe a little bit embarrassed. I'm so sorry I'm late to this, to this meeting. And, you know, I got out the door late. I was helping Monica with something. And, you know, and, you know it's because of her and me helping with her that I'm late. So, uh, so it's kind of her fault. Yeah. It's not my fault. And, uh, and, I, and, um, uh, and I realized, uh, well, I didn't realize this, but he, he pointed it out to me. He kind of looked at me and he uh, was, uh, my, my mentor did, and he had a kind of half smile. And you could tell he could care less that I was 10 to 15 minutes late. It was no, no skin off his back. But, um, but he looked at me, kind of half smiled and said, don't ever talk about your wife. Uh, don't ever talk negatively about your wife in front of other people. Never, never complain about your wife uh, to others. And, and his words stuck with me because on the one hand, I'm like, well, I mean, I'm just being honest. Like, can I just be real with people? But, but I, I think what, what, um, what, what he was getting at and what he was pointing out and what, what my, even my attempt to shift the blame off of myself was, was pointing out within me uh, was not my concern with truth and making sure that he knew who was really at fault, but it was uh, making sure that, I, that he knew that in elevating myself and making sure he knew that I was a really a responsible and innocent person, and that it, when I did so, I was elevating myself at Monica's expense, right? And so uh, that, was, that happened early on in our marriage, and I, um, so it's been, that's been an area, some, an area of pride that I've seen that, I, that by God's grace I've been able to, to kill at least a, a little bit. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm still obviously not perfect at it, but it's an area by God's grace over the few years that we've been married that I've, that I've seen growth in. I, I, he's changed the way that I talk about my wife in front of others. Uh, but as I fought this one specific area of pride, how I talk about my wife in front of others, uh, I, I've seen that my concern with my reputation, my concern with uh, how other people are viewing me in the moment, uh, is way more pervasive than, than that. It, it extends way beyond just my relationship with Monica. It, it extends into every single facet of my life. How I do affects uh, how I uh, do ministry and how I talk with people that I that I that I serve with. It it uh, affects uh, how I uh, interact with the rest of our, my my family. I'm, I'm con- continually, constantly uh, throwing out comments or, or doing things to to prop myself up to shift responsibility off of myself and onto others. And that is a sure sign that in my heart I despise and dishonor them. I'm willing to let them look bad in order to to prop myself up. You see, uh, so uh, God gave me grace in one specific area, in one specific kinds of conversation that I have. I was able to humble myself. Uh, But then 
only to find out after receiving some victory in that area, a thousand other areas of where my pride and my clamoring for status and recognition would pop up. Oftentimes we, we fight sin like we're playing whack-a-mole, right? We hit one, and, but then as soon as we hit one, ten more just pop up and we scramble and scramble and we, and we realize that at the end of the day, we are powerless to fight these kinds of sins, to really keep them down. We're trying to, to plug the holes in a dam with our, with our fingers while thousands of gallons of water are rushing down on us. This is what our fight against arrogance, this is what our fight against our uh, status and recognition is like. We're just like the disciples. We deal with it once, but then it comes right back. We are too gripped by an obsession with recognition and status to defeat pride on our own. So, what do we do with that? How do we, with these sins that grip us deeply and have roots at the very foundation of who we are, uh, how do we deal with it? Is there anything in Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 20 that tell us how to fight this kind of habitual, ingrained, and all-consuming tendency towards self-promotion? I think that's exactly what we see beginning in verse 26 of chapter 20. Jesus looks at his disciples and he tells them, Be like me. Be like the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve. Not to receive honor, but to dole it out relentlessly to others. But then, in that final phrase of verse 28, he even goes a a step beyond that. Did you notice that? He says, he tells us why he came to serve. It was in order that he might give his life as a ransom for many. Right? And this is the crucial, critical thing about the gospel. We, you and I desperately need that final phrase in verse 28. In Jesus, we don't just get an example to follow, although we do get an example to follow. He does tell us, be, be like me, be like the Son of Man. We get a ransom to save us and then to make us the humble children that he calls us to be. Right? The gospel in its essence is not be like Jesus. The gospel is the good news about what Jesus has done for people who know they can't be like Jesus. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, though great, humbled himself, laying aside his greatness and stooped low to show us honor, serving us by taking on our low status and being treated in the dishonorable manner that you and I rightly deserve to be treated in. He was despised. But then he was also vindicated. He was raised to glory. And in his glory, you and I receive honor and glory from the Father. We have been purchased. We have been ransomed out of darkness. Not because of any honorableness or greatness or status that we possess in ourselves or that we have earned for ourselves, but because we are found in him. Because we, all of who we are is wrapped up in what he has done, what, in the status that he has earned for us. In Jesus, we have received a status that is far greater than anything we could ever earn for ourselves. Now, this is what my pride-obsessed heart needs in order to fight sin of self-promotion. Right? This is the only gospel that I, my heart can actually rest in and find healing in, from. 
What other kind of honor, what other kind of status, what other kind of glory could, could we ever want or settle, settle for than the, than the glory that we receive from Jesus? No longer do we need to, to fight and to scrap for honor from others, right? making sure that others know how competent or how important we are or how important or competent those that we associate with are. We no longer need to insecurely prop ourselves up as great. We have been purchased with the blood of Christ himself. We have been ransomed into the freedom and the glory of new life with him. Now imagine how resting and trusting in this gospel, in the status Christ has earned for you that you could never earn for yourself, imagine how resting in that gospel would, would change the way you fight that habitual, reoccurring pride issue in your life. All right, so uh, pride threatens to destroy us. By humbling, uh, by, by trusting in our humble king, we can f- radically fight uh, the sin of self-promotion. But now, the fi- our final point this morning. By trusting in a humble king, we can honor others through our own humility. Not only does the, 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 does the gospel give us the, the, the power to, to kill our, our sin, it also gives us the power to honor others. The only, when you and I, when we become a, a, a people, a community, a church family that, that, that rests securely in the status earned for us by Christ, he makes us into a body, into a people uh, we're honoring one another, we're receiving and affirming and serving one another is the natural outflow. That's what the gospel does, not just in our lives personally, that's what the gospel does in the community that Jesus is establishing. We, and we actually see this f- point fleshed out in both of the passages that we looked at, both in chapter 18 and in chapter 20. Jesus tells us uh, uh, that we honor one another by receiving them. That's what, we, that w- that's what we've Looked at, but then in chapter twenty we see uh, that we honor others by serving them, just as Christ has served. So whatever status or influence or leadership you have, you are to use it not for your own advantage, like like the leaders that we see out in the world, the leaders of the Gentiles, but we are to use it for the advantage of others. So there's two two ways that we honor here. We honor by, by welcoming, by receiving, by, by affirming the low. That's what we see in Matthew chapter 18. But we also honor through our service, by humbling ourselves and serving. So we honor others like Jesus through our affirmation and through our service. This is the beautiful image of the Messiah's kingdom that we're given. We are to be a people in a church where honoring one another is just a part of our DNA. It's just what we do. It's what we each when we gather here on Sunday morning, when we scatter uh, and, and see each other throughout the week, that's, that's how we relate to one another, affirming and serving one another. It's the air we breathe, that's the water that we drink. So, uh, what does this look like specifically during our own, this, uh, this moment that we find ourselves in with, with the coronavirus as we rephase uh, back in? I'd encourage you to check out a video that Justin posted online uh, this week. Uh, uh, very, very encouraging words. I, I kind of want to reiterate some of that because I think it, it applies to uh, what to Jesus's words uh, here uh, in in uh, in Matthew chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 20 as we think about what does it look like to 
honor, to affirm, and to serve one another, even as we rephase back into gathering uh, with uh, recovering from the coronavirus. Now, it goes without, doesn't need to be said, but each of us in this room have a land in completely different places. We, uh, there are some of us on one end of the spectrum who understand this to be, or who, who view this to be a, an overblown conspiracy. Uh, there are others on the complete opposite end of the spectrum where that, uh, who see this as a vastly underestimated and lethal disease. Right. Wherever we find ourselves on this end of the spectrum, and probably most of us are probably somewhere in the middle of those two extremes, uh, wherever you find ourselves, your primary calling is to honor and to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially those with whom you disagree, right? It's easy to honor and affirm people that you always agree with. It's harder to honor and affirm and to serve people with whom you disagree. Um, so we must be careful with that with our words and with our actions. We do not dishonor. We do not create, create stumbling blocks for those who view this crisis differently than ourselves. And as a church family, we must remember that our calling is to place our others' interests above our own. Right? Rather than clinging to our own comfort or what makes sense to us, our own opinions, or even clinging to our own rights, what, what is rightfully ours, we are to defer to our brothers and sisters. So on, on the one hand, if, if for those of you who are more comfortable with reintegration, we must consider those in our body who are not comfortable with that, right? And we want to encourage physical distancing, even in a full room like this, as much as possible. I know it's very tricky and it's virtually impossible, but as much as possible, we want to encourage physical distancing and refraining from physical contact. We also, there's a reason we're not providing food and beverages right, during, during our services like we, we normally do. Uh, there's a reason we're slowly integrating children's ministry. There's a reason we're, we're doing a number of things. There's a reason we're continuing to do the live stream for uh, the foreseeable future. We'll be, we'll be providing the, the live stream for our, for our services. Right? But regardless of what we do as a church, like church-wide kind of decisions that we're making, Jesus is ultimately concerned about your heart uh, and, and the heart that you are fostering toward others? Is it one of contempt? Is it one of frustration? Uh, you, you might be over the virus. Don't be over your brothers and sisters in Christ. But then on the flip side, if you are more cautious, if you are concerned about the risk uh, involved in physical gatherings, there's a couple of encouragements for you. First, know that your hesitancy to, to return or even to return to, to a physical gathering or in any way, like, uh, fully engage with the community here at Peninsula Grace, whatever hesitancy you feel toward doing those things, uh, it is not a sign of your spiritual maturity or your ability to trust in the sovereignty of God, right? Uh, so if you find yourself not ready or find yourself needing to take extra precautions that maybe not everybody else is, is, is taking because of uh, fear of exposing yourself to increased risk or exposing others to increased risk, that's okay. You, we, we can do those things. You can, you can stay home. There's no pressure or, or need to, to return. It's okay to stay home during the season. But then secondly, we must also be concerned that our 
we must also be careful that our concern about the coronavirus does not produce in us contempt for our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? On both sides of the spe spectrum, we have the potential to dishonor one another with our hearts. We can disagree, but we must be careful not to dismiss or disrespect our brothers and sisters with our words, with our tones, with our actions. All right, my friends, Jesus is building a very countercultural community of disciples. That's the point, right? So the way we respond as, as, as followers of Jesus is going to, by definition, look very differently from the way we see the world responding, or at least it ought. Pride threatens to destroy this community. It, it threatens us at all points, but especially now. Uh, we can radically kill self-promotion. We can honor one another only by looking to our servant king. God desires continually and increasingly to form the body here at Peninsula Grace into the image of his son. And as he does so, he is building something beautiful among us, a, a place where the, the greatest are the least, where the lowly find rest and are built up, where our king was made to die the death of a slave and to lay down his life as a ransom for sinners. Let me close in prayer. Father, we, uh, we thank you that... Uh, uh, in, in your uh, death and resurrection, in our place, in, in our stead, uh, you, uh, you bore the weight of, of the shame, the disgrace, the dishonor that we deserved. Uh, and, but then when you rose again, you rose with us. Uh, we rose with you. Uh, and we now share in the new honor the glory and the status that you receive as you sit at the right hand of the Father. And we, we share that not, uh, not because of anything good within us, but only because of your merit, your honor, your status that we could never earn. So teach us, Lord, to rest in that. And then flowing out of that rest, teach us how to honor, to build up, to lift up others. We commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen.